Chapter 4, The Priestess Reversed. You can try to play it off as a joke, like the ramifications of what you're doing, causing creators to doubt or question the validity of their projects, are severe and possibly highly detrimental. Fucking clowns. Oh my god! They've got Uwe Rosenberg! They're stringing him up! They think he's you! It doesn't look anything like me. Let's go, and let's go now. Unearthed by their experience, the wanderers set away from the Jekyll and Hyde, continuing the countryside trail into the base of the valley. These were the dales, shaped by mountain streams etching away at the earth. Although clear, the stones and pebbles that lined its bed were black as jet, a spilled inkpot bleeding from the Hart's mountains. The rough crags and sharp points were less a hazy horizon now, solid grey stone capped in snow. Do you know what's even more embarrassing, right? Richard, Richard uh, Klein, there you go, I can't remember names anymore, so it does make 50. Richard Klein knows me in the flesh. When he uh, heard my age, he said, oh, I always thought you were older than that, Craig. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> you just don't want to hear that when you just said, well, I'm 41. Oh, I always thought you were a bit older than that, Craig. Besides the path were planted gigantic speakers constructed to look like plants. Their mammoth horns loomed over them like heads of copper lilies. One of you is the devil, one of you is like a cultist, and one of you is like a normal human. Honey, this is wonderful. And you are sure think of everything. It tastes good. Like a cigarette should. That's what they all say. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. To give away your soul, which I think is hilarious. They love it. Because they can do so much with it. And hey and that is right. We are so excited to share with you its first official podcast sponsor. The band struck up again, filling the amphitheatre with cheery echoes as Craig and Joe strode along near the water's edge. The burning star, Wormwood Red, shined brighter with every passing hour. This is it. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. I wish you'd go home. Do you need any help carrying your bag, Mr. Craig? No, no, Norm, you'll only dent the corners. I'll carry them. A sickly plain stretched towards the range, a repulsive mix of grass greens, amber wheat, and swathes of burgundy heathers. A bird's eye view would reveal a diseased lung wrapped in arteries thick with cholesterol. You're giving up currency in that auction to gain other benefits, but then you may not have enough to lay the track where you want to route your path through these mountains and hills to get the resources which will earn you money. Like a balance of different currencies. You need a certain currency to, to buy trains which can deliver those goods. So I think the overall structure of the game is fascinating. It provides an experience which is different from other train games in its field, but I haven't really come to any kind of fixed conclusion yet. Look, here's the reality, right? I am nowhere near a conclusion either. It's that whole kind of journey of thought, exploring your early reactions and then testing them against repeated play. And my initial reactions, I hate resource conversion games. It's a local value. It's a my failing here, or my preference rather. And that last train to Wensleydale had hints of that, balancing these abstract currencies. Why can't we just have actual currency and auction for stuff? The brilliance of Age of Steam, it does just cut all that abstraction out. For a game that's considered to be advanced and difficult and complicated, it doesn't lean too heavily on complex or multi-level abstractions at all. The complexity of dividing the currencies into multiple currencies, it's also like a manufactured decision, really. You're not saying, right, I've got all of this money here. Where do I want to invest it? Or I have to divide it these coarse ways. This is going to get me this, that or the other. And there is no mix that isn't that presented on the table. And I guess there's a theoretical world where oh and the wrong things came out i needed green and no extra green came out oh okay there's less green on the market than i'd otherwise hope 
It's a conceit. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it sounds like I'm decrying the design. I'm talking through the quality of the design. I'm talking through what's on offer there. Like, I enjoyed it, but I don't feel any need to explore it to the level where it would be a podcast in and of itself. All of this fuss really distracts from the core of the game, which is digging into those mountains and delivering cheese. It's just a puzzle that gets in between the point of conflict, the point of competition, which is I'm racing you to grab the resources. I'm racing you to build the track in the places to enable that. And I'm racing you to get access to the trains that will allow me to do that optimally. They're the three kind of key races. I found, particularly in that last instance, there wasn't a huge amount of competition between the railroads and the resources. In the previous game, I had more competition between players. In that second game, less so. No one obstructed my rail building and no one stole any kind of resource away from me at any point. Nor did I actually steal anything from anybody else. So there seemed to be, particularly in that second game, less tension throughout on all sides. You made a comment that you thought actually the auction becomes more tense as the game goes through. There's only four rounds. The last couple of rounds are more tense. The first two are a bit of, well, whatever. I'll take whatever resources and then work around that, whatever I've got, then I can start formulating a plan. But then later on, once you've got that plan, you need particular things to make the plan work so that it becomes more tense as you go through the game. Mm. But you were saying that you would have preferred that tension right from the beginning, a la Age of Steam. You need to get in there building in this sudden place to deliver that. I think part of that might be just born without ignorance from the game, and this is where maybe I'd like to explore it. You know, at my own pace, not like a podcast. We're going to release a podcast in blind months on that pace. Got a schedule to keep up, Craig. Do it next week. Full review. When you first play Age of Steam and you don't know what the value of anything is, everybody bimbles around each other and goes, oh, okay, yeah, I'll just do that. Oh, yeah, I'll just do that. Yeah, I'll just do that. And whoever happened to luck into the thing that's the most profitable or maybe did it intentionally and nobody else noticed if they're a shark, then they win, right? Whereas once a whole table knows Age of Steam then that opening auction is very aggressive because you can see where the value centres are and you're willing to pay a premium from round one to get what you need to access those value centres. So was that a product of the design, Last Train to Wensleydale, or was that a product of the fact you had a table of relatively new people bimbling around an auction game where they know the price of everything and the value of nothing? What is it about the game then that makes it one of these games that we don't want to explore? You've got these questions around it and you think there's some intrigue in there somewhere. What is it exactly that makes you think, ah, I'm not too worried, I'm not too bothered if I play this again? Where is that reluctance coming from? It's like a lasagna. I'm looking at this lasagna and I can... I mean, it looks like lasagna. I know, I was going for that. You can look at the height of the dish and get a sense for how many layers are there. You don't know precisely what's in each layer because the dish is opaque, but you can get a sense for how many layers might be there. And I get a sense with this that although I'm obviously not playing it optimally and maybe a bit more table savviness might make the game more exciting from the get-go, less like a stroll in the park and more like a sprint to the bushes for that cheeky wee that I need, with the frenetic energy and excitement that entails, public urination, I get the sense that there aren't that many layers to the lasagna. You know, you can estimate and go, okay, yeah, it's quite a slim dish. And yeah, there might be a layer of beef in there. But I don't think there's going to be like 10 layers of quality decision cheese. Maybe there's three layers of quality decision cheese and I could spend my time finding something with more layers. That's the sense I get. It feels like when you play a winsome cube rail game that is one of the quicker, off-the-cuff, concept-in-a-box type designs. That's not trying to be a full, rich, mega experience a la Chicago Express. It's just trying to be a very slim thing. For example, Erie Railroad. It's just very slim design. It's trying to do a specific thing, and it's trying to do it in a quick time. You know, explore to a very limited point. It's not claiming to be the last word on anything. That's what this game feels like to me. It feels like most of a concept, but not enough of it not expanded enough to make me want to explore it further. My main issue is that the decisions come from the random setup and the auctions, they've got a variable element to them, which is random each turn. And so all of these decisions are created by the design of the game itself rather than the input from the players. It doesn't feel like there's emergent strategy beyond that puzzle solving that comes with that variability of the board and where the locations are dropped. 
the opportunity for somebody to do a very clever move. Oh, I hadn't considered you could do that. Yeah, and there's no financial manipulation apart from absolute blocking on the board or getting right up in someone's face and stealing their resources. Maybe there is a layer of studying everyone else's plan and the kind of resources that will need in that auction and going out of your way to ensure that they're paying high prices for those. But then, I don't know, there's that balance of then you're possibly losing out on the things that you desperately need. And while there can be competition on the map, and the map does provide those kind of narrow channels that you're trying to get through, it also seems a bit too large to really press that competition. I get to the end of it and I think, would I play it again? Yes, I would. Do I really want to start drilling into it to get all the subtleties? It feels competent at what it does, but it does feel quite limited in scope. And that's okay. Not every game needs to be 1830. Well, I don't know. It would be quite good if every game was 1830. Yeah, okay, it would be good if every game was 1830. But for me, it's probably a footnote game. This reminds me of so-and-so in this. At the very least, it's a one-and-done that I think about moving forwards, as opposed to one-and-done and I've forgotten about it. It just goes in the memory hole with all the other carbon copy experiences. There's something to it that is notable, even if it didn't pay off in terms of being something that's an evergreen that I'm going to want to hammer five times a year. And you're broadening your knowledge of the genre as a whole, looking at those past works by a big renowned designer, Martin Wallace. And it's interesting to go through his... He's, nor- he's normal-sized, actually, to be fair. I've met him. He's not, like, massive. He's not, like, not Herculean beast stalking the halls at Essen. He's just, like, a normal bloke, mate. I think you misheard. I said big and round. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. Beer belly, and um, <laughs> I would pay not to see his OnlyFans. Oh, inside baseball reference there. Very good, very good. We might get cancelled for that. You got the bravery for committing that to air as opposed to Discord. My word. Just going back to 1830, serious reason why we'd probably never cover 1830 is because it's so well documented, so well explored. We would never have anything new to say. And I think we enjoy being on that frontier, exploring something and talking about it in depth, which fills a gap. It feels satisfying to talk about a game that few people have talked about. If I'm going to spend time thinking about it, recording and then sharing the thoughts, I want to be adding to the conversation. It's not worth your time editing, it's not worth my time recording, it's not worth our collective time playing a game beyond the standard enjoyment threshold for a thing. As you know, we play these games virtually until we hate them to try and test our assumptions and our conclusions and our reactions to the games. I don't want to put myself through that and the game through that if it doesn't move the conversation forward or add a valuable perspective that people just can't get elsewhere or better. We could just do a podcast where I read from J.C. Lawrence's blog. It'd be really easy. It'd be quite a few hours of tape. And people go, oh, the analysis on there is very good. And you'd go, well, yeah, of course it is. J.C. Lawrence came up with it. And we add nothing to it, right? Absolutely nothing. Quite a nice audio book, wouldn't it? Through the wasteland they trekked, alone but never truly. Tracking their progress, an enormous drone hovered below the clouds. A mammoth plasma screen attached to rotating helicopter blades. It called and cried, two voices in the air. Is it he, quoth one, is this the man, by him who died on cross? With his cruel bow he laid full low the harmless albatross. Welcome to the QVC2, it is the joy of toys. Not only toys that are gonna inspire imaginative play and really wow someone on your gift list, but also if you're looking to kind of take the edge off with holiday shopping, we are dashing for the deals. I'm definitely really excited for this. So much so that we are here on Black Friday, Saturday weekend, and I'm going to be unboxing this bad boy. Yeah, we're gonna sit down and enjoy this. Is something that's really fun, and I'm super excited. It's item number T. 42974. I also happened to be so excited for it that I ordered a second copy. The game's so nice, I bought it twice. You probably can play this for hours and hours and hours, which I, lo- I actually love a game like that. Oh, I'm just a wee bit excited. I mean, because who wants to play charades anymore? We're ready for some new stuff. Yeah! Let's see, so we got some wooden bits here. We have the first player marker, and then we also have, this is the round marker. 
Next up, we got some four by six bags, it looks like, and a good amount of them. My goodness. All right, so then we're on to shares. So shares are pretty cool. Something a little different. It's gonna take a little getting used to because trained gamers don't like change. <laughs> All right, so we have our rule book. Good examples in here. Hey, it's not like double column. It's nice, big space printed. So listen, don't worry. You'll get the instructions when it comes home. Like this is the game that you're gonna play with your family, your friends, your game nights. I love a good game night. If you would come and look at my game collection, you would be, I think, a little bit impressed. 1880, it's my favorite one. I've played over 100 now, and nothing's come close to where this lives in my heart. I absolutely love this game. Because that's what it's about, having fun, disconnecting from social media and all from the internet just to get down to a really fun board game and I love introducing new board games oh my god I was watching that where did you get that gun I told you I had a problem with pests in my loft Joe not into guns I've got pests in my loft No, I don't think it was that drone that made me feel like we were being followed. I thought it was a log in the river, but then I saw the eyes. There's two pale sort of points, and it had paddle-like feet, or, I don't know, tentacles. At least that's what I think I saw. It's the creature that grew from the games in our cellar. It's been paddling after us ever since we left the Jekyll and Hyde, and it seems to be growing. Look, there's a little boat tied up down there. We should take it and row ahead of the creature and lose it once and for all. With Craig and Joe at the bow, Ian Scrivens and Fred Strauss at the oars, and Jake and Norm packed into the back of the small yacht between the brass and the bass drum, the boat was pushed away from the bank. I'm going to place my bag here. Do not get it wet. 1825 is irreplaceable. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. The boat passed through a tangle of river reeds towards the centre of the channel and the band of adventurers began to push upstream. Obviously my consumption of board game media is probably just too much. In terms of viewing or listening, I've got a 40 minute drive to work. I listen to a lot of media through podcasts. For the vast majority of the time, it's games that I'm not interested in, games I'll probably never play, and the fact that a lot of the reviews are first impressions, which don't even give more than a summary of their rules, really. Not the kind of media I want to consume, the kind of the analysis and deeper dives, just lists and lists of games, just for no apparent purpose at all. So you're moaning, essentially, that you've spent hundreds of hours reading the Argos catalogue, and then you're moaning that you're not being provided with plot and subtext and theme. Oh, it's just, it's just adverts and stuff. I don't get it. It's just adverts with a price and a brief summary. I, I expected so much more from the Argos catalogue. <laughs> what does uh, Bill Bailey call it? Was it the laminated book of dreams or something like that? Have we managed to fit three British references into 10 second soundbite? Argos, <laughs> Bill Bailey, laminated book of dreams. I can actually feel the listeners clicking stop on this podcast as we go. Why did I fill my time with this? Well, occasionally there was a game that was spoken about that did seem interesting to me, but got to the stage where I'm listening to these podcasts at double speed. I need to condense these. Everybody sounds enthusiastic at double speed, Joe. You're flicking past the sections in the Argos catalogue you're not interested in. <laughs> kids toys? Nah, I don't love my kids. Come on, straight to the <laughs> hi-fi stuff. Anyway, how did I even get here? I started off listening to podcasts which actually did do these deep dives and covered interesting games, and they've either disappeared or changed completely out of recognition. And I've just collected more and more podcasts to try and fill the gap to the point that it's taken over 99% of my media intake. Yeah, I'd hate my hobby to be like that. It's a you problem. You've created the monster here. Mm -hmm. Your balls don't itch because your balls are itching. Your balls itch because of something else because of the fungus you put down there earlier. But man, I would hate my hobby to be defined by desperately trying to be ahead of the curve in every single quadrant of it, because heck, there's so much of it. Have you ever heard of, um, it's a well-known phrase, they use it a lot in America, I think, keeping up with the Chris Spaths? I've heard of it, yeah. That phrase actually came from the comic strip in 1913, and it was the same year that Ford introduced the assembly line. In the same year, Joe Camel first appeared on a pack of cigarettes. Nice. 
So, keeping up with the Chris Spatz social comparison theory, it's just that innate tendency to compare yourself to those around you. And this can be healthy because it can allow you to self-evaluate but it can lead to feelings of unhappiness, uh, feelings of inadequacy. And the fear of missing out is an extension of this. I was reading an article about the fear of missing out by Catherine Nolan, and I won't repeat all her words, but she suggests that FOMO is disarming in its casualness and humour, though heavy with social currency and prescribed ways of being. That was a quote from Catherine Nolan. And she talks about psychological studies that experiences of FOMO are linked to fatigue, stress, physical symptoms and decreased sleep. But it was talking about that participatory culture and Christian Fuchs, that can't be how you pronounce his name, Christian Fuchs. Fuchs. He's a right fuker. He was saying that fandom, which is generated around various hobbies, becomes highly capitalised, and these cultures become co-opted in the service of the market. Yep. So That's my yeah. advanced response. Yep. So we've got excited people essentially doing the marketing job, whether paid or unpaid, for various companies. Then the article digs further and talks about ASMR, cultures that employ the sensory qualities of materials and objects in order to produce a kind of haptic visibility, and how it's almost heightened to like a fetish level. And it actually points out one of the examples are like unboxing videos and also products that are played with or products which are slowly unboxed and constructed. That video format is especially hypnotic. I liken it to when I watch my child watching some YouTube video of kids popping open surprise boxes, some toy, and then playing with it on screen. And it's all done with this first-person perspective. And I look at my child and I think, one, why am I letting you do this? But two, you've got toys there five yards from you. Why aren't you playing with the toys directly? Why is the telly and the passive consumption of this thing so much more powerful? And actually, you go, oh, how are children so stupid that they're hypnotized by this stuff? I don't know, man. I just feel like I see some parallels in the way that you see the kind of the most advertorial type board game channels. Mm. They seem to be a close relative or leveraging the same centers in our brains. Here's a quote. It says, yet whilst fetish, these videos drawing on primal associations with touch in some way also speak to a human desire for connection to others. And the sensory lure of these videos and the pleasurable effects they transmit operate at a pre-conscious level to keep spectators engaged and consuming. You could be playing a game without even realizing the nature of the game you're playing. I don't mean Agricola, I'm talking about in the wider sense. I'm not saying they're going in and they go, I knowingly am doing this and I'm knowingly potentially creating these responses and I'm knowingly helping these people sell games. And it's just made me think that maybe this kind of fear of missing out has actually affected me possibly on like a deeper, more psychological manner. Or are you finding Jesus in your toast? What you're saying kind of actually rings reasonably true for me. It's almost like a junkie's withdrawal. You've been able to engage in this way for so long, and then the absence of that for circumstances beyond your control makes you feel hollow. Then you try and investigate and determine the reasons for that hollowness. Why do I feel hollow, absentia, this thing? Is it a local value, human connection to my friends, not being there, or gaming opportunities I'm interested in, not being present? Is it a different limbic system that's been broken? The Blackwater River began to lose its definition. Its banks spread ever wider, eroding until the small boat found itself in the center of a vast marsh. The shallow inland sea was monochrome and lifeless, mist rising like spirits, blurring the lines between the mountain range and the overcast skies overhead. The red star pierced through the gloom, guiding their way. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are The wind began to grow stronger, early signs of an approaching storm. They raised the sail. Ian Scrivens rested the trombone on his lap, took a moment to look over the side of the boat. Down beneath the surface of the shallow waters, his reflection shimmered and altered. Skeletal features, hollowed eye sockets, teeth without gums. Well, it's so lovely to finally see your face. And you, my lady. I'm so glad to have you here. I 
I'm a collector. Also, oh, you know. your board game is actually something that I used to play Ooh. when I was very, very young. A long time ago. Unopened. Ooh. Still had the plastic wrap. Ooh. No dents. Don't look and no don't listen. But it's so beautiful, Craig. We want to That's touch it. We want to touch it. We need you. We need you so they, much. I do hear that quite often. Joe, actually. bind his eyes and stuff his ears with cloth. Fred, row harder. It's a mermaid. Row harder, damn it. It's a beautiful mermaid. It's a fucking monstrosity oh, is what it is. A demon. What are we going to do? Row harder. Row harder. Let's get out of here. Come on. Faster. Faster, Fred. Ian. Shake out of it. There's more of them. Listen, there's more ladies in the lake. Don't listen, don't look at them, keep your hands out of the water, and if they offer you a fucking sword, do not accept it! I will tell you this, I'm going to sound like an old man here. My direct experience is that social media is absolute poison for your brain. Mm -hmm. And board game media operates on many of the same ways. There's a whole kind of collective overexcitement, the egging each other on to consume, to behave in potentially destructive ways, such as consuming more more games than you can afford even if it's not more games than you can afford maybe more games than you can possibly play in the time you've got available to play them so contrived board game hype yeah. as well mm -hmm. we're talking about this one because it's the one to talk about and that's not to say there isn't such a thing as responsible consumption but I don't feel like the industry I don't feel like Essen when you go there with the hundreds of thousands footfall the six halls full of people I don't think that's singing to responsible consumption necessarily your visit to Essen did it feel like you were on the edge of a frontier exploring new worlds or did it feel like you were a cog in the machine of a slurry of the games cycle pouring off the edge of a cliff and probably only a couple of games will wash up ashore did that metaphor work? <laughs> yeah, had to. So it's hard to go into something that is designed to create a feeding frenzy of consumption and tell yourself you're going to be a rational actor. You've already spent all the money going there. So going around like a Trappist monk, denying yourself everything, feels like bad money after good. I'm saving money, I'm here. Look how virtuous I am, not buying anything. That's a lot of busy halls to push through and a lot of tempting shiny things to try to sort of like stop yourself buying like some sort of mindless automaton magpie that can't stop himself buying <laughs> shiny things. But it's probably not too far from the truth when it comes to me. But if you ever get to the stage where you're feeling cynical and you're just going as an observer of people, just watch the human swell, the human tide of people washing from stand to stand. I couldn't think of a more illustrative example of blind consumption than Splendor Jewel. On day one, I heard there's going to be 100 copies released per day at Essen. It's going to be three months before the normal people get it. <laughs> and they sold out quick every day. And I was in that queue day one, queuing mm. for a game I normally wouldn't use for kindling for the fire. <laughs> partly because plastic leaves horrible tar up the inside of the flue, partly because I'm a horrible gaming snob. The point I'm making is, outside of an environment like that, you would not make those consumption decisions. But there's this shared mania. This is what we're here for. We're here for the hobby. Consume. Is part of that kind of sharing also to the outside world through social media and displaying performative consumption here's my haul it's perverse i've never experienced another hobby that's quite like it you tell yourself that it's it's like a conscious thing that you are sharing your excitement subconsciously mimicking those around you right then trying to not be left behind by the crispaths he got Splendid Jewel as well. But I got it before him, so he, he didn't keep up with the tailors, mate. I'm sorry to say. 
I heard you became a model or something while you were out there. Got picked up by an agent. That's such a knob. Got collared by one of these Instagram street photographers who approaches you with a camera rolling and, oh yeah, oh, English or German, oh, you got a cool look. Can I take a photo of you for my Instagram? I'm like, wow. And I must have just been so bloody awkward looking mm. that he just decided not to stick me on his Instagram, <laughs> which is great. Too ugly for media is fantastic. I have truly got a face for radio and a wardrobe for the circus. What were you wearing? It was a leopard print short sleeve shirt and a parrot green or grass green Crocs and some yellow and purple tie-dye shorts with cargo pockets. I think it was like a blue undershirt. It was like the whole thing. Honestly, man, it looked like Stevie Wonder dressed me before I went out of the building. <laughs> Just literally, okay, which shit do I have has the most pockets on? because I needed me to carry in stuff around the fair. Sorry, you just mentioning pockets just reminded me of I've been listening to the audiobook of Five Children and It. Have you ever read that or did you see the BBC TV series when it was on? You must have watched British TV in the 1990s. The British TV, as we call it. The one big giant TV we share in Covent Garden. No, mate, no. I was locked in a basement. When uh, Robin's a bit older, you should introduce her to it. There's a Samiad, which they find in this gravel pit. A Samiad is a sand fairy that can grant wishes. I don't even know why I'm describing this now. Because it's I, got... I certainly fucking don't. I'm on the receiving end of it, so... <laughs> Anyway, whatever they wish for, it doesn't quite work out. And I'm sure there's like a moral story in that. And the gravel pit fills up with these gold coins. But they're like golden doubloons. And just one of the boys... <laughs> I don't even know why I'm describing this. I'm just literally describing you the plot of The Five Children in It. But anyway, he's got this costume where he has nine pockets. He's quite proud of his costume, whatever he's wearing. So he's just filling up all these pockets and with all this gold bully him until he gets to the point where he can't actually stand up which maybe that ties into the kind of FOMO thing we were talking about earlier maybe. If it's any help Joe mm -hmm. that absolutely wasn't fucking worth it <laughs> and then anyway they go into town. Oh and... Christ this story's going further. Jesus well, fucking It's a novel. Because like, someone said gold bullying in my pockets and I walk into the fucking <laughs> sea to make it stop <laughs> Anyway they go into town <laughs> and You could do it anyway don't anyway! <laughs> they try and spend their money, but it's all worthless. It's all worthless because it's not current currency. And so they learnt the value of being careful of what they wish for and the value of using precise language. Ah, it's gold doubloons. That was the moral. You can't spend currency that isn't relevant anymore. So. Uh, no cube rail games made in the last five years are relevant anymore. Chapter 5 The Star. Is it gonna rain? I don't know. I never check the weather forecast. Well, one of us needs to. The current of the Blackwater River steadily grew stronger. Blades of jagged rock jutting up from the foe. The Hearts Mountains were around them. Banks of the Great River rose steadily into dark cliffs, closing out the grey sky casting shadows upon the tiny craft dwarfed in the canyon below. This is it. Gonna be there soon. I pray Blackwater Station is all the answers we see. First there's a test of our virtue, I'm afraid. Test? What test? A great torrent tumbled over the edge of a gully into the water around the boat. The bow cut through a sheen gloss of rainbow oils, a bright sewage thick with warped grey plastic moulds which cluttered around the hull before bobbing below the surface and floating further downstream. Suddenly, breaking through the mist, the Vulgate of the Hearts. There, two colossal statues known as the Argonath were carved either side of the ravine. Tridents gripped in their right, they held their palms of their left hands outward in warning. We're gonna have to be fast, Joe! Why? Have laser beam eyes, that's why! Laser beams? As the Fellowship heaved their oars forward and back, the stone eyelids of the Guardians slowly rolled open. Eating extensions are long, complicated, and require more math than you get trigonometry forward. Look like this. Take an entire day to play, even if not experienced, it's having comprehensive. For God's sake, use your gun! There's a stone statue! I've only got one shell left! Ball game, 
never gonna make it! Stop panicking! Look! I know another way! Brave directed the crew to row swiftly to the shore. And they pulled the boat onto a muddy beach. It's easy, mate. You just go around. It's not that hard. There was a narrow footpath, steps of flat stone that led up to an old iron railway bridge. It traversed the channel above the heads of the stone giants, out of sight of their deathly gaze. The tracks led up a winding path through the mountain in one direction, trailing out over the beach below and disappearing beneath the river. Joe looked back at the torrent beneath the feet of the Argonath. A shadow loomed below the water's surface, serpentous, multi-limbed, and watching. Craig, look! Its creeping limb crawled out onto the beach, scaled and oozing reaching for the yacht. It's the monster we saw in the cellar. It ripped the craft swiftly into the river, cracking its hull and tugging it down into its depths. The gauge games, it's coming after us. The crew marched over the bridge as the Argonath rumbled hollow warnings about the land they now traversed. The many men, so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. What was that? Well, apparently, because this is the best thing that the Ethernet's publishing and paying community could come up with, but isn't difficult to read. Be aware that they will look a bit homemade. Don't get me wrong, there are redesigns, and they are much prettier. They're just not welcome. They're just not welcome. The bridge was lit by gas, bathing warm light over the decking where the tracks were bedded. Countless padlocks have been clicked shut in its girders. Inscriptions commemorating significant dates through the ages, from the cradle of civilization to 1830, and on, ad infinitum, keys thrown away into the Blackwater River below. The band passed over the gully and began to climb the narrow-gauge railway tracks, despite the taunts that rocked up from the belly of the Colossus beneath. The more I got, the more I found the community feel that actively argues for everything that keeps people out. This video is for you. This is a combination of a year's work of research and critical analysis. A trade wind began to pick up from the coast, not far from there. Fresh air filled their lungs that puffed and blew, steam rising from their mouths. So, Poseidon. The main change to this game is the track, or what represents the roots and the income gained from those roots. And I wonder if you feel like that has been dumbed down, or whether it gives you an opportunity to think in a different way. So you have an exploration boat. At the beginning of the game, it starts in your home city, and it will move across the map at varying speeds. And as you explore the map, you can, if you like, drop off trading posts, which means now you are able to receive income from that trading post if your fleet of trading ships can reach it. That is the same component as a little cylinder as the shares. Merchants, Joe, merchants. You know our listeners hate it when we use incorrect terminology to describe a thing and then we say, but we're going to call it something else. We're infamous for that. Yeah, we are. Where you leave this exploration ship, at the end of one operating round, it will be there for the next operating round. It's a commitment, which makes the race conditions easier to pass. You can have multiple parallel race conditions for track lane in a traditional 18xx game, and for new players, I guess, that opportunity for their opponents to explode out of any end of their network, and then to have multiple players doing that at once, could be reasonably tricky to pass. So you're on top of it, and you realise where your points of focus need to be. Whereas this is very explicit. It makes one element of the parsing trivial, but then exchanges it with a planning problem. So a player or a nation can access the revenue of the hex or not. It's on or off. Rather than there be considerations about laying the track and fixing a direction of the track, how can that track be upgraded? So far, so much cube rails. Players are never blocked outright from that hex. They can pass over a hex to another. It just means they're blocked out of that income. So you can't completely deadhead 
someone, trap somebody. There's always a way to move through it, but you can argue the complexity of that in terms of how the fleets work. Death by inefficiency, right? Because I can practically deadhead you. If I screen you off so to travel to pick up your next revenue centre past all my stuff is going to take you three hops, then practically that is never going to be a viable route for you unless you move your home station, which is something you can do in this game. And as you have to route all your ships out of your home station, that's a huge thing you can do to change where you're earning revenue. But early game, even to the mid game, I can make it very hard for you to go past my stuff. It feels awful using your limited amount of fleet movement, the number of stops you can make, basically. It's the number of hexes you can traverse, right? It includes blanks, so they're more like H-trains in that sense. Personally, I loved planning the trajectory of that exploration ship and thinking far ahead of your ability to even reach those trading posts. There were a few times during the game where I had to make a U-turn and that was because I navigated my ship terribly and realised I had to go in a different direction or other players already placed their trading posts which meant that I was forced to change direction and then was inefficient because I wasn't marking out new territory during those rounds and those mistakes felt satisfying. It felt like I was learning something new. I guess that's part of your motivation for wanting to read visit this is to play that aspect of the big more proficiently obviously those little wooden boats weren't adequate signals for you about the race conditions that were at play well um, i'm being facetious i'm making light of it i wonder if those decisions become less exciting the more proficient you get at it you've already marked out where you're going do you mean the efka theory of 18xx where 18xx is more exciting in the early days when everybody's playing loose do you feel like once you've mastered that and everybody's just doing their routes almost procedurally, if that ceases to be fun anymore? I don't think in the next game I'm going to think, oh, I went the wrong way. I've gone the wrong way for two turns. I need to turn back quick. I'm going to reach the edge of the world and drop off there. I don't think that would happen again. I don't think I would lay as many stations for stations' sake. Like If I'm not planning to ever use a route, I probably won't commit to that direction. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually what I should have done was carry on laying stuff in your face, so to speak. I've played 18xx for more than a year, which I think is unprecedented across the, the whole of the human population. And I get the sense that beyond this exploration boat, there might not be so much to explore within the framework of the rest of the game. But I, I don't know. There's, there's less opportunities for collaborative value generation with the way it's structured. Because cities broadly pay either phase-wise, if they're on those temples, or they just pay the same thing for the entire game. And the amount that we have committed to that part of the board has no bearing on the increase of value as time goes on. Mm. If you and I are playing 1830 and we both are committed to cities on the east side of the board and you and I are playing together, they're going to get to brown more quickly than somebody who's noodling by themselves on the west side of the board. I think that's less involved. But again, this is why I see this as a mashup or a variant or adjacent. I think this is asking its own slightly different questions. And some of the elements of the game are resultantly going to be shallower, but it asks questions that aren't asked at all in, say, 1830. Or if the question is asked, it's asked with a very different skew. There's some nuance there because you're making a trade between how many of these trading posts can I drop on the map, which is like extending your track, and how many shares are going to be available in the game to buy and sell. Do I want to earn now versus do I need money later? From these merchants, Joe. <laughs> now, my first impression of that is that decision wasn't blunt enough. I had way more bits of track available to me than I could ever really need to use mm -hmm. based on the length of train ships I was running. Yes, I wished I could have felt a more painful decision issuing the shares or using the trading posts because they were the same component. I think right at the end, when I was given one last chance to capitalise my company, there was a decision. I had to spare some for trading posts and I had to make that calculation quickly in my head. It took him 25 minutes to calculate it and he did it with graph paper. <laughs> yeah, forecasting. 
<laughs> my runs for the end of the game, but then refusing to use those forecasts when we came to actually running. To accelerate the payout. Yeah. <laughs> there is a decision there, and it's more nuanced than I can see right now. Maybe it isn't really a decision. I don't know. That is another big question mark here. So even though we both agreed that it would be an easy one to sell from our collections, it's hard to audience, hard to get to the table, because people who are already into 18xx would turn their nose up at it. And people who aren't into 18xx, I'm not even convinced it's a good representation of the genre or necessarily a supremely solid thing in its own right. And the fact that we like exploring weird things as a function of that podcast, I don't think I'd have gone near this. But would you want to explore it more, even though it's something from a just a pure player utility value we both agreed isn't all that? At this stage, earnest question, because for me, I'll help. I'll help you. You don't here, have Joe, to help me. You. you don't have to help me. I'm just I'll, I'll waiting for you, your Joe. question Joe, to Joe, end. Joe, 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 Joe's, desperate. Joe's desperate for help here, man. This is him floundering. Help me, Craig. Because for me, I think I would like to explore it on an academic basis. For a whole year. Like a Greek myth. Heroic. Just to explore the shape of the weird stuff Lonnie and Helmut have done with this. I don't think I'm going to come out of this at the end as a champion for Poseidon. I feel like it's more a landmark game. I'm interested to understand where this sits versus that Baltimore and Ohio, versus Dual Gauge, versus other mashup games, and also where it sits in the history of 18xx. What other stuff was around that even tried to do what this did? Yeah. Can I answer the question now? Okay. Now. Well, now, now, and now, and now. I do have to get my graph paper out. It's not as wild as Splotter's uh, 1830 BC, because that game subverts every single aspect of 18xx. The way you lay track, or don't lay track at all, really, is probably the focus of this game. And the rest of the game is there to support that new innovation. And when we played it, it didn't leave me as thrilled as Splotter's uh didn't make me think I need to play this again to see whether I can wrap my head around this thing. Am I excited? No. I'd quite like to give this game an alternative voice to explore it beyond a lot of those superficial complaints that this is just for beginners. To try and view it from a perspective that doesn't decry what the game doesn't do. To look at it more coldly. To not be so enthused by negativity, which is brought on by false expectations. You played it, what do you think? I had an absolute blast. I went to bed that night when I finished playing and I couldn't stop thinking about the game and I thought it was uh, I honestly don't think you should say things like that. We've had one single play of this game. Think about what can an audience take away from that conversation beyond any surface level entertainment. We throw up questions about the game, we make it sound interesting, but provide no evidence to back up any of our initial first impressions. So what can the audience do about that? They can only get the answers to the questions by finding a copy and purchasing it themselves. That's really interesting. It's nice. It's it's really nice. And so I don't really want to sort of open that whole can of worms, but I just think that's an interesting... Why are you trying to sell the game? So that's not what I'm doing at all. I'm just pointing out that there's an interesting sort of dichotomy there. Listen, we built a picture inside your head. We do not give enough information about the game or the context in which it was played. What you're imagining right now probably didn't even happen. Like, hold fire. Do not track down the game on the second-hand market. Have patience. Wait until you've got more detailed information. Do not buy Poseidon. I know you're only joking, of course. (laughs) Delight is almost primal sometimes, isn't it? I really enjoyed that! And the enjoyment is the destination of the feeling, and your thought process stops there. Absolutely. The enjoyment is enough. And deconstructing where that enjoyment comes from. Risks taking it apart and losing the magic edifice that that allows the enjoyment to breathe, to exist. Maybe this is what I feel like. It's like being in limbo. We're seeking these pleasurable experiences and we're searching for the next new thing which will light up our synapses and make us feel joy. But our natural inclination is to put the game on the operating table and take it apart to understand why we feel that way. Then, on the other hand, all the adrenaline of the chase in hunting a game down with that promise of joy, we can then feel 
disappointed with the catch. Was Greentown a Grail game? I think so, yeah. I've been watching for a while for it to come up at a reasonable price. Like I'm some kind of cat-like predator sitting in the bushes, ready to leap. Nothing could live up to the hype that you'd built up in your own mind about that game? No. Greentown is a great example for for me, because it's not a fault of the game, that's a fault of the self-priming. It was underwhelming, in part, because what you had in mind is rarely achievable. I know we're very edgy on this podcast (laughs) and think that maybe some great games don't receive the attention they deserve. The sort of level you'd built it up to in your mind, potentially, I'm making a story here like Joe could have been far more rational. If it was that good, surely it'd be printed by Eagle Griffin Games in a big coffin case and everybody screaming out all the expansion maps they've drawn for it and blah, 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 right? The truly great things, don't they get picked up? I think there's a lot to say about pop culture and zeitgeist and not every idea procreates. In terms of Greentown, I think there are only around like, 300 copies made and I think there's a mystique around that. Like, are you going to be part of the chosen few? I don't know, maybe that's true of the Winsome Games too. That heightened sense of exclusivity and a kind of maybe desperate fanaticism. Here we are with our big red noses and dunce cone hats. Maybe Greentown probably only has an audience of around 300 people anyway, and those are the people who sought out and bought a copy of that game. And then out of those 300 who are motivated to write or talk about the game, the the greatest of those fanatics, the, the Pagellacci of the board game world, these clowns gripped by enthusiasm. I suppose that's one of the dangers that comes with specialising in a particular field. You fall into an echo chamber of positive feedback that can only build like a, a brand of hype. The thing about that is it's not a failure of the game. Right? Can you control your priming and go in and looking at something neutrally and therefore delete that arguably unfair anticlimax? and the catalogic experiences that you have, controlling your priming, be it what you read, the anticipation you create, so you can enjoy something in an almost innocent or naive fashion? I don't know. I don't know. The funny thing is I think Greentown is definitely my type of game, and on further play it will probably grow to show that. So I'm wondering whether the first impressions in this case, which were, you know, this is not the Holy Grail after all, could potentially work in its favour, like Ride the Rails. That grew on us, and we discovered that there was more to the game beyond our first impressions. But I still think that good, positive, glowing first impressions is just icing sugar covering, you know, God knows what underneath. They're misleading. And I, I, I like that idea that you could delete aspects of your memory, you know, erase the ideas that those content creators have subconsciously projected directly into your minds. Kind of like a, a self-induced lobotomy. Right, Norm? Yeah, it's a lovely hobby. I adore it. I love it. I can't wait to play again. I'll, I'll tell you the story, right? What happened? Uh, no, thanks for taking the time to think it's about that, the meta exploration. Thank you. Let's go. Let's call it. 